need for arduous seeking. All you have to do is follow the clues. You start to see this as a simulation, as a type of computerized AI manufactured reality. We are playing like putty into the hands of the manipulators who are just setting us at war with each other. Beautiful day in the neighborhood, people. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood, and anyone who's even halfway paying attention should be able to see that we are wading into deep waters when it comes to the implementation phase of ideas that have been coming from the multi-generational management class and the dark nexus of elite think tanks, philanthro-capitalistic funds, boards, commissions, NGOs, coalitions, and all the other acronym organizations they use to manifest their dreams into a nightmarish reality. And it seems like the seeds they've been planting for decades are all now simultaneously sprouting from the dystopian soil of a technocratically controlled global walled garden that separates the masses even further from the nefarious few. Things like online opinion managing, ministries of truth, carbon controlled credit cards, farmer bankrupting regulations, frankenfood engineering, ownership erosion, increased surveillance, 15 minute free range smart cities, bans on traditional energy and products, health passports, digital IDs, and more tightly controlled everything are all being implemented as we speak with pilot programs and national trials all over this island earth and getting very little coverage outside of those brave enough to sound the alarm while they still can, like today's guest, Dr. Jacob Nordengard. For the unfamiliar, Dr. Nordengard is a well-educated Swedish researcher and author with a PhD in technology and social change, masters of social science and geography, and masters of social science in culture and media production. His informative books include Rockefeller, Controlling the Game, The Global Coup d'Etat, and most recently, The Digital World Brain, all published through Pharos Media, of which he is the CEO. But that's not all, folks. He's also the singer and songwriter of the metal band Wardenclyffe, with lyrics inspired by his research, and each of his books, including his dissertation, has come with an optional soundtrack. He certainly stays busy, so let's waste no more time. The music-making, management class critic, rogue academic, and highlighter of the horrid things to come, Dr. Jacob Nordengard, welcome to the higher side. Thank you <laughs> for letting me on. Yeah. <laughs> of course, of course. Thank you for doing this. I heard your interview with Gramerica, and they were kind enough to link us up, so a tip of the hat to them. And as much of this agenda 2030 technocratic global government stuff gets talked about in alternative circles, I do think it's the most important thing going on. And I wanted to have someone on who is based in Europe, where a lot of this is coming through the UN, plus your book, Rockefeller Controlling the Game, also hits on a specific curiosity that I've had too, which is why the Rockefellers who built their empire on oil seemed to suddenly do a 180 by demonizing and divesting from oil in about 
2014. And of course, what was going on behind the scenes might have been different from what it appeared on the surface. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but that was the nagging question that drove you to write that book. Is that correct? Yes, uh, it was. The book came out in Swedish in 2019, but I had worked with this for 10 years. I was studying um, biofuels policy, the European Union biofuels policy. It was the topic for my dissertation or doctor thesis. And as I was doing that, I was writing a background chapter on climate because climate I mean, it was so important for the European Union. They had to go into renewables to stave off the global warming and, uh, and so on. So I had to have a, a chapter with the background to the climate. As I was uh, doing that, it was very strange for me to find out that some of the big meetings in the 80s, before um, the IPCC was founded, the meetings that led up to the founding, they had been funded by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and the Rockefeller Foundation. And I thought that was very strange. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, had, I had studied energy politics and also everything with oil. I have written a couple of papers about peak oil theory. And, I mean, you stumble upon Exxon immediately. And, and I mean, they were behind. They founded the Exxon Standard Oil Corporation and everything. So it was just, why do these people go into climate change? <laughs> yeah, of course, I give the answer in Rockefeller Control the Game. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a great book, and it's a deep dive into all the different books these elite people have written and the organizations they've started and where all their Rockefeller Foundation funds go. But I suppose that the, the gist of it is that they want a technocratic global control cabal more than they want an oil empire. Maybe they can have both, but that seems to be their competing motivations, and the one that wins out is the one that gets them more control. Yes. I mean, they, they have worked since the 50s with climate change, and they put it on the, on the political scene in the United States in the 60s. And it has always been about, they identified it as a problem that span across borders. So it has to have international control. And that's the thing with it. <laughs> And they know also about everything about energy and how energy works. And we know that we can't have windmills everywhere. Windmills or solar power won't do uh, <laughs> any good. It can't solve everything. So fossil fuels will still be used. And I think when they have their technocratic global empire in place, they can use whatever energy they like. Yes. But at that time, they don't have to tell people that they have to give up their rights because of climate change, because then people won't have any rights mm -hmm. left. So then they just can do what they ever like, more or less. Yes, well said. And I was also going to ask you, because we just hear so much more about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum these days, and the spotlight on the Rockefellers kind of has phased out a little bit. But since David died a few years back, is there anything important to note about the next generation that's in control now and 
how the passing of the torch has or has not affected the implementation of these big agendas? Nothing has changed, really. The only thing that's changed is that, I mean, David was a more public figure. He was very more known to people than the new generation. Well, we have Jay Rockefeller, of course, that was a senator, and Stephen Rockefeller, a professor of religion that has been very involved in, in this agenda, and as well as David Rockefeller Jr. And we also have the younger generations. We had Valerie Rockefeller that was heading the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and also Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. And they are still very much into the game. They are just continuing the agenda. I think we have a meeting twice a year, the whole Rockefeller family, where we decide what we are going to do and what's up next. So it's just a continuation of, uh, of what they have been doing for the last hundred years or more. Yeah. But they are not that known anymore. It's not the big names. It's not like it was when we had the five brothers with Nelson, for example, a former vice president, and John and Lawrence Rockefeller. Yeah, and that's probably to their benefit. And so, to my knowledge, your Rockefeller book is the only one published in English, but it mentions a previous autobiographical book you wrote called An Inconvenient Journey in 2015 about what happens when you challenge powerful interests connected to the university and the difficulties getting one's research results out when contradicting general presuppositions. Let's get into that a bit because you have all the right degrees and you were pretty embedded in academia. I'm curious what that story is because there seems to be a real blockage there when it comes to getting more well-educated professionals to recognize this control scheme for what it is. Where did you first start to experience friction and how can we get more people like you to see through this stuff for what it is? Because a lot of academics seem to be cheering it along. Yes, my real problem started when I was a new PhD student. It was in 2008-2009. And the thing that started it was when I wrote a working paper called Force Lean Interaction. That I, want, I wanted to know the background to the climate agenda and, and how everything had started. And when I was doing that, it was just, wow, damn, what a story. And it's so unexpected. It was not like I had thought about it because, I mean, when I found all these big oil men in the background and also to the think tank club of rome and everything it was so much things that i had to revalue everything that i've learned about the history of the environment and environmental movement and so on because i found all these big actors behind this and so i presented this for my supervisor at the time I said, this is so, wow, what a story. And I said, this is about global warming, you know. Is this really correct? I mean, this is the big players. <laughs> I mean, they run the, the oil business and everything. And when he read the paper, it was just, no, not so interested. I could just throw it in the garbage can, hmm. according to him. He thought, uh, no, we shouldn't have a seminar about this. Don't continue with this. 
it was his advice, don't continue. And for me, it was, why? I mean, this is huge. And the thing was also that I was at the, the Climate Policy Center in my home city, uh, North Shopping. And this Climate Policy Center, I first thought they were working for, uh, I mean, analyzing the politics behind climate and doing it more neutral. Don't have a bias in it and, and just take it for what it is. But it was very obvious that they were working for the agenda. They were working for, they didn't study politics. They wanted to make politics. They wanted to do the work better than it was done. And they had a lot of meetings and connections to the government in Sweden. Mm. So it was clearly very political and the professors, they were very involved in this. So when I came out and said that this agenda, do you know where it comes from? Do you know who is running these things? They didn't want to hear that because, I mean, all their funding and everything was about, I mean, it's based on this story of, of climate change. And these people, they didn't have a clue about the story and how the climate uh, issue had come up from the beginning. They just had bought into it because, I mean, it gave them power and prestige and, and money and everything that they wanted. So if you come up with something that goes against that, I mean, it's not popular. The thing was, when I published this paper, some people were quick to start to labeling me as a denier, <laughs> even though I, I mean, I didn't mention the climate science. It was just, I have analyzed the actors and networks that were behind it and who were pushing for policy and didn't talk about uh, climate science. Of course, I delved into that as well and found that, okay, <laughs> this, this isn't science, <laughs> was my reflection directly. I, I studied it uh, and it took me an afternoon to find out that, I mean, this isn't science, it's uh, religion. It's, uh, <laughs> they don't have anything. They don't have any proof for anything, but they claim to have. The science is settled <laughs> and everything. Right, right. So, and the thing in Sweden as, uh, at our universities, when you are studying, I was studying political processes about environment and so on. It's a political there. So you can't go against it. It's very sensitive. Yeah, it's like that here too, from what I understand. And that's a pretty good summary of the landscape. But let's jump to the present because in September of this year, there's a big event happening called the Summit of the Future, and several policy briefs about this stuff are coming out in preparation, and you've been covering them really well on your Substack. One of them is called Information Integrity on Digital Platforms, and you call it an Orwellian future with tight control of information to tackle the existential threats they label as hate speech and disinformation. Well... <laughs> We know they want to control the narrative. We saw it with COVID. Talk to us about the things they plan to implement to achieve this goal. Well, it, it's so much. I mean, the control of information. I mean, they have these initiatives. One is called the Verified Initiative. 
Yeah, I mean, it's all they have already started with this, and we started with, during the pandemic to label information. And in the future, they want to more or less stop it before it <laughs> goes out into the, the internet. So, I mean, it's more or less like a ministry of truth. And it's like the United Nations, they, they say that they are so interested in the views of the people of the world. They want everyone's voice to be heard. Especially all these groups and people that are minorities and so on. But they don't want to hear things that goes against the United Nations own agenda. That is information, misinformation and hate speech for them. And in order to do this, they also want everyone's information. They want to know who is saying what and collect everything, what everyone says on the internet so they can track it and they can build profiles of you and flag you as a spreader of hate speech and bad information and so on. And that comes with digital ID as well to have an identity all the time in that way. They can also if you talk about things that goes against the agenda or agenda 2030 and so on, they can just block you and they can also make life harder for you. I mean, we have this with CBDCs and so on, and many years can have programmable money uh, that you can't use if you say the wrong things. So it's so much things they have in this package that is so totalitarian. Of course, they don't package like that. Usually it sounds so nice in their wording. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you really go into and read all, all the things, it gets really scary. Because when you know that these words, they don't mean those things for them. It's like they're taken every word and just corrupted it corrupted the meaning behind words like freedom and inclusion (laughs) (laughs) right right you can hear hear, um, Klaus Schwab (laughs) Klaus Schwab's pronunciation of of inclusion (laughs) indeed and let me ask you about some current events in Europe because this show can often be pretty American focused but we have heard about the struggle with the Dutch farmers we know that this attack on cows and fertilizers is happening more on your side of the pond. I'm sure it's in the mix over here too, but it just seems like it's starting to roll out there in a bigger way. What is the current state of that struggle? Are people at all waking up to the fact that, hey, just banning nitrogen fertilizers, this doesn't seem like a smart idea given the situation we have and the yields of crops. It seems like a recipe for disaster What's going on with that at this current stage? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, there has been protests against it. When it hit farmers especially, I mean, farmers has been all the time, they have had tough times with authorities, schemes, and what they are trying to do. So they are tired of it. And I think when this heats up more and more, will wake up here 
we have seen it and I have experienced this as well, especially among ordinary people, not academics. They are brainwashed, <laughs> almost every one of them, but ordinary people. And I have a, a lot of more people that buy my books nowadays. I mean, as soon as they start to implement these things, people can feel uh, they are affected of it, the agenda. So it changes things. So I think a lot of good things has happened in the Netherlands with people reacting now. Well, that's a silver lining. I mean, I like to hear that, but I think a lot of times these agendas, sometimes they are rolled out covertly. And then by the time they actually affect you individually, well, the apparatus is in place. It's, it's too big and it's already there. Like an example might be the France situation because they just had not only a pretty big uprising over the retirement age getting bumped up from 62 to 64. Yeah. And as soon as that was dying down, now there's huge riots and protests over the shooting of this teen immigrant by the cops. I've heard several different angles on this, but a lot of researchers are saying that the roots of this issue would be the mass immigration brought in from North Africa and the Caribbean. And then something like this just pushes that cultural friction over the edge, maybe intentionally. Some are calling this France's George Floyd moment. But what are your thoughts on this and the EU's immigration policy in general and how it might suit the aims of the UN and World Economic Forum? Yeah, one thing is that people, they just look on that part of agenda. And I know in Sweden, it's very much about the Muslims and everything. So every eyes are on them. They are afraid of these people instead of reacting on the real agenda and the players that are behind it. But also, I think this started very much with the big refugee crisis. And what I think what happened during the pandemic woke up a lot of more people and they could see the connections between these agendas. So more and more people wasn't left just into the immigration problem. They started to react and see that, I mean, this goes into also pandemics and the climate and everything. So, mm -hmm. but of course, if you're one of the top players, they have used this as a methodology to, they have a, a crisis that makes people just look into that direction, of course, when they are implementing their greater plans for the world. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, we did this as well with, I think about what happened when the pandemic was over and we had the invasion in Ukraine and so on, and every eye was there. <laughs> and mm -hmm. nobody talked about what happened with vaccine injuries and so on and sudden death syndrome and that's a better strategy to always have this new crisis coming on yes but we won't have time to really reflect on what's happening and just be in shock all the time but it's a difficult and hard play to game at the same time because as i said it 
has woken up more and more people and more and more people are starting to talk to each other all over the globe. And uh, I mean, I have, have so many new contacts uh, the last three years that I didn't have before. I mean, it was uh, kind of lonely uh, writing about <laughs> Rockefeller and the climate before 2020 because it was me and a couple of old climate professors that uh, did, didn't like that their science had been hijacked. And so, but now it's, I mean, I, I think it has gone to become a movement now Yeah, with people reacting. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, and I hope it continues to go. But you're right about people, at least some people, realizing that these agendas do interlock, but they have been really good about taking any critics and shaming them with a label, anti-vaxxer, COVID denier, climate denier. And with the immigration thing, obviously, that's one of the thorniest to talk about. And of course, they want it that way. But if you criticize that, then you're clearly a racist. And, you know, you don't have to be racist to see how pushing cultures together and then exploiting that friction can be used to keep people fighting each other rather than the big machine. And if you want to create a global control system, you need to break down the cultures and nationalities and get one big melting pot going for one world government. And some researchers call this the white genocide, which is pretty aggressive as a term. But over here, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., just went down to the Mexican border and said, I didn't think it was a top priority problem, but no, now that I see it, it is a real crisis. The cartels have put the word out that it's an open border. Mm -hmm. They're bringing people in by the thousands who don't have any resources and don't speak English. And it's just unsustainable, but it's what they want. So news media won't cover it and they attack anyone who brings it up as racist. Seems like there's some pretty clear parallels to what goes on over there and what's going on here. Yes, of course. They're doing the same sort of agenda. And they have, they have, they have said that uh, there will be a lot of more refugees coming in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the modus operandi. And, and of course, it's all about to make this omelette, you have to crack the eggs and, and uh, <laughs> you have to shake everything and, and also create a worldwide empire one thing is you have to destroy all the cultures of the world. And people, they are very afraid that for Muslims and so on. But this, this happens. I mean, they want to destabilize everything. And they want to have an empire where we have nationalities mixed all over the world so that you can't find this strong cultural identification anywhere. The only thing that's left is kind of a bad substitute, a mishmash of uh, a standardized global culture. I mean, we have seen it for, for a long time with, I mean, Sweden is a real an example of this with, uh, with how they have, I mean, it's almost taboo to talk about Swedish tradition today. It's, mm. uh, you can't do it, you're a racist. So this government and the governments of Sweden has since the 17th been at the forefront to achieve this. And it's all about denying the past. Yeah. The past is bad and the future is good. The future is where we are aiming and they are promising all this, this paradise that will 
<laughs> came in fruition in somewhere in the future. It's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like uh, the Soviet Union and communist paradise. We just have to go through this very hard times. It will not be funny, <laughs> but in the end, <laughs> it will be a great paradise for everyone. Right. And of course, we, we know that uh, <laughs> probably not. And of course, the immigration thing is really just one aspect. Like, I think we're doing a pretty good job of destroying culture on our own. Yeah. But that is icing on the cake. And when you're as pale as you and I are, we better not be proud of a damn thing except that our time is over. And that seems to be one of the messages. But you also have a great three-part post called Russia, Ukraine, and the Emergence of a New Global Management Regime. And in one part, you show pretty clearly how embedded Russia is with the World Economic Forum. This is something I've had guests say multiple things, you know, contradictory things. But you write, to date, 67 Russians have completed the World Economic Forum Leadership Program. This includes names that have or had close contacts with the Russian presidential administration. Well, how should we fold that fact in and this cozy relationship in with a proper analysis of the general conflict between Russia and the West? The thing is, I mean, the players at the top, they are transnational. I mean, what are nation states for them? What is West for them? What is East for them? I mean, it's just the grand chessboard, as <laughs> Spinner Bershinsky talked about in his book with the same name. So what we are seeing now is, is just the last stages in creating this new world empire. And this has been in, uh, in the making for a long time. So, I mean... If we go back in history, I mean, wars has been financed by these people, They're both sides. <laughs> Second World War, First World War, and we can go back uh, to a 30-year war and, and so on. It's an old thing, but I mean, it's the money power people that are behind this. Mm -hmm. And for them, I mean... What is the United States for them? It's just something that they use. It's a vessel for their interests that they have been using as they have been used. They used the British Empire before. And the British Empire was totally bankrupted, or more or less bankrupted, after the Second World War and lost all the colonies. And they just moved on. And then what was the United States? And they had moved on. A couple of times before. I mean, that's how empire is working. And if we read books like, I mean, we have Joseph Tainter and we have his classics with Spengler about empires. I mean, it's that, that thing. An empire is doomed in itself. It starts and it has to expand. And when it can't expand anymore, it just withers away and die. That is what's happening now. It's, it's the last big bell before. And, and now they think we can have this globally empire instead. Mm -hmm. 
And that's why we're heading for space. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I wanted to ask you about that because they do have a, a policy brief about the future of outer space governance, and you wrote a great post about it. But one other thing about the Russia-Ukraine situation I wanted to try to squeeze in is the power plant. There's a lot of online talk about this nuclear power plant yeah. that's in traditional Ukraine. It's currently in the Russian-controlled territory. I think it's a top trend on Twitter right now. A couple of days ago, I saw a story about things that look like bombs going up on the outside. The mainstream is saying it's Russia. I think Zelensky said it was Russia trying to blow this thing up. The alternative is saying Ukraine and the West is really behind it because that might act as a catalyst to allow NATO to go full World War III. And it does seem like a very delicate situation that I kind of have some concerns about because it seems like the West is just poking, 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 trying to find the right catalyst to really launch this global war they might want to launch. Are you keeping an eye on this pretty closely? Are you worried about this nuclear plant? I mean, by the time that this episode goes out to the people, maybe that story's over. I mean, one way or another, but what are your thoughts on that and any other potential catalyst to really kick this up into the next level. Yes, I mean, it has been in the making for a long time now. And uh, of course, I mean, I live in Sweden. It's close to Russia. And as you know, Sweden has applied for membership in NATO. Right. It's a big thing now. And of course, the media here talks a lot about this nuclear power plant and everything, scaring the public, of course, scare us to accept and go along with the agenda. But I don't know, if, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, a strange thing was what I was looking on a Swedish comedy show that was from 2017. And they had an episode about the elections of 2022, it was a satire of the future world. And the interesting thing was that during this election, they were out and talking to people in the streets. And it was a third world war going on. And it was radiation everywhere. And we had masks. Mm. Over. So, I mean, it's almost like, predictive program you know i mean it has been going on for a long time but the interesting thing also is i mean that's what i was trying to get through in my articles about russia ukraine and wef i mean it's been going on in the background and we had this situation since 2014 or before but they have cooperated all the time <laughs> behind the scenes and wef and Speerbank CEO was a part of, was one of the trustees of WEF just, just a month before the war started. And they also had these exercises, the cyber polygon exercise that was going on in Moscow for three years involving WEF and Western big corporations like ABB and so on. <laughs> so... They have had something going on. They have planned for this. That, that's what I think. Yeah. So it's a much of a theater now. I agree. And just to 
elaborate on what you were saying in part two of that Russia, Ukraine, and the emergence of a new global management regime series, you mentioned that the deep strategic importance of Ukraine for the globalists goes back to Brzezinski's, the grand chessboard. And you write that the country is considered to have great strategic importance as it is part of the Eurasian heartland and forms a bridge between Europe and Russia. According to British geostrategist Haltford McKinder's heartland theory, going back to the 1930s and 40s, this area is the key to controlling the world. He said, who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island controls the world. So again, just to back up what you're saying, this is part of a very old plan and largely seems engineered. Yeah, it is. Hmm. Yeah, so it's very old. And it's knowledge that they have had. And they had wanted to also that Europe and Russia don't be too cozy with each other <laughs> in order to control this. And one thing is they, they also, it's where the border is going in this coming world federation when we will have these big blocks. So now Ukraine will be a part of a European Union block. And then I would think that Russia will eventually have control over Donetsk and, and those Russian-speaking areas. And that will be part of a peace agreement when it comes eventually. I mean, that was uh, Kissinger <laughs> said that as well. <laughs> you know, he thought that. Uh, and they have their own big block of European uh, or the Eurasian economic community mm -hmm. consisting of, of Russia and Kazakhstan and some of these Central European republics that are more close to Russia. Mm -hmm. So I think the power plays in, in Moscow, they want to control that area. Yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> So to get back to the UN policy briefs and this article that you wrote, What's Next to the Moon, which goes over the policy brief, the future of outer space governments, you write, this policy brief formulates the grand vision to reestablish a presence on the moon with a way station, the lunar gateway, and the development of a base at the south pole of the moon, as well as conducting a manned mission to Mars. These are old fantasies from the late 1940s that never seem to materialize, but their space-based opportunities also highlight the important link between outer space and the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, with the importance of satellite surveillance to track deforestation, monitor protected areas for legal poaching and fishing, and assess biodiversity changes, as well as track our every move through the global navigation satellite systems. <laughs> and I agree with you there. Is there any more to say about their plans in this area? I mean, space, it's a, a lofty goal to get up there, apparently. Some people think we, we never really have had much success there. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is wild. Yes, it is. I mean, uh, uh, one big aspect, uh, of course, is the surveillance agenda and all the satellites. But I mean, as we know, it has been a lot of talk about space now and space activities and UFOs and so on. So, oh, yeah. so one can uh, speculate on what they have up their sleeve. 
because I mean they are talking about space threats, comets, asteroids, and debris in space that could hit Earth and so on. But it's like they have planned for something <laughs> and that deals with this extraterrestrial threat. Mm-hmm. I think it could be what Klaus Schwab talked about. The black swan. Mm. It's a possibility because I mean, it, it, they have invested so much in this space agenda now. So we will see what will happen. <laughs> yes, hard to say in advance. But here's something I didn't know that comes from one of your articles. You write that the BRICS nations are often depicted as in opposition to Western domination. However, They are working to implement Agenda 2030 with the same enthusiasm as in the West and have adopted high-tech solutions with total surveillance of the entire Earth system and humanity to implement it. And, of course, China is in the BRICS anagram, and we know that a lot of this is like the China template, but that is also somewhat surprising that these nations that are trying to unite against the Western dominance are really just trying to implement their own control system instead of actually being opposed to what the West is doing. Yeah, the thing, I mean, United Nations, it's the nations of the world. They are opposed to Western aggression. Why would they be opposed to the United Nations? They are a part of the United Nations. China and Russia are founding members. They are in the Security Council. <laughs> so, so why would they oppose United Nations agenda? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So when you look into the documents from BRICS, from their leaders' summits, they all uh, say, we have to move on with United Nations Sustainable Development's Agenda, Agenda 2030. This is very important. And also climate change, everything that the United Nations says. What they oppose is NATO and uh, how NATO is expanding. That they can say something about. But they don't oppose the United Nations. Why would they? And also, I mean, these countries, they are a part of the G20 group. Russia, China, everyone. And if you go into what the G20 is, I mean, that is the premier forum, global forum today. And as is stated also in the policy briefs, they want to move more or less G20 into the United Nations. And that's an old idea or old. It's like when they started the G20. Both Gordon Brown and Mikhail Gorbachev said that we think they should have meetings in the United Nations. And this G20 with countries like China, I mean, it's, uh, in, in China, was it like 2016? They had the big leaders meeting in China and there they decided to implement this new industrial agenda, the fourth industrial revolution. It was in China. And it was at the G20 summit. They did that. And if you look into all the documents, that is, I mean, G20 is huge. It's, it's, they have meetings all year, hundreds of meetings. 
And it's all have to do with financials and upgrading the global system and how to prepare for future crisis. I mean, it, it was started as a reaction on, uh, on the global financial crisis. And then they have added how they work with climate change and pandemics and terrorism as well. And those countries are part of that. They also in the leaders' summit, they say that we work for the Agenda 2030. It's very important. <laughs> and the thing is that <laughs> I think I mentioned this in, in the Russia, one of the Russia Ukraine articles about that in Russia, they have this a guy that's working with climate. He's the climate envoy for Vladimir Putin. And he said that we take this seriously with the climate. We will do this. We will continue with the Paris Agreement. We will not do like certain actors did in United States. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and that's about Donald Trump, of course, and, and this thing will be leaving the Paris Agreement. So they are not doing that. I mean, you can find it in these documents. Of course, we don't know what's happening inside the brains of these people and, uh, and what's happening on, on secret meetings and so on. But all that is official. We can see that they are following the script. They are doing this. They are implementing the agenda and so on. Yeah. Well, the realization that the national divisions are just artificial and a lot of it is theater only makes the whole thing seem more guaranteed and harder to stop. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> yeah, but you that is, you can't trust that a leader of some country will do something about it. You can't vote in an election and think that now this guy is in and he was going to change everything. No, it won't happen. <laughs> Not today. This has to be a grassroots thing. It must be a thing when people are realizing how this big machine is working and not buy into this propaganda and all this shit. Yeah. It's just to abandon this sinking ship. Yeah, I mean, I agree, though. Like the audience and myself and yourself, we've realized it for years. We've seen it for years. They write the books. They tell us what they're going to do. Um, it just seems like we can only watch. Although little things do happen. This is something hopeful that came from your book. But you mentioned... Sometimes there are limits to what citizens will accept. In August of 2019, the city of Norrköping in Sweden announced that they had purchased bracelets with Bluetooth tracking chips to be tested on 12 to 15-year-old children in a kindergarten. The bracelets would alert staff if children attempted to move outside the kindergarten area, known as geofencing. This pilot project was said to be part of the Department of Education's efforts to increase school attendance, thus not just preschoolers. The announcement elicited intense reactions from both the public, the political opposition, and the Swedish Data Protection Authority, leading to the project being stopped. And that's one of those things that does make me hopeful. I think they have to overstep, and then we have to react, and with enough of those reactions, 
more people will see how these things are interlocked. And then uh, maybe maybe there's some hope there. But I like those little anecdotes about actual pushback. I don't know if you know of any others, but that one was pretty nice. Yes, and I think it's, I think they are in a hurry now with the agenda because they feel that more, especially after the pandemic, that so many people reacted and thought this was just pure madness, just evil. And the thing with, they actually wanted to have this summit of the future this year in 2023. Why did they want it so early? It was because a lot of people were still in panic. But as I um, read in, in a, it was it's a think tank involved in these preparations, and they wrote that, oh, there were some member states who were some kind of suspicious on, on this summit, and, and uh, that it was supposed to be held so quickly. So they demanded that we have to have more time. So I think something has happened now. They feel that they have to do this very, very fast. And they, I mean, they had this announcement of the decade of action in 2019, that they wanted to go on very fast because they knew the time was running out and it was running out for them. Uh, uh, so, so we have to do this now because mm -hmm. before people will wake up and understand what we are really doing. And when they started this madman project with the pandemic and all things that came with it, and this is the plan, but this plan, I think, has backfired. And now they're trying to, with this, our common agenda to try to put back truth uh, somewhere where uh, people won't find it. But they can't do it. I mean, it's everywhere. You can't hide it. Uh, <laughs> so that's what we try to do this, uh, I mean, the Ministry of Truth and be on the internet and policing everything. And they, they, they think we, we will have this artificial intelligence that will be everywhere and analyze and just pam, 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 pam. But I think they have, I mean, that's technology and, and technology can be scary and it can be powerful, it can be everything, but we have something that is much better than that. I usually refer it to, I mean, we talk through internet, but I refer it as I had have a God net. I have something that is outside this, that gives me information and connects me with people and, and so on. That's not technological. And the more they push, the more power the, the opposing side gets. That's how it works all the time. And now we try to get out of that. <laughs> and one thing is also that they may decide that what should we do? Maybe we have to just get rid of humanity <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> before, before they will catch us. So. Yes, and uh, I think I said an error earlier that the event was going to take place in September of this year. But yes, they pushed it back because people were a little too skeptical of it. And I like kind of trying to analyze the timeline thing because it does come up. Agenda 
21 turned into Agenda 2030, and a lot of this stuff does seem to get pushed back, probably because they think that the speed and the pressure is what gets people to be skeptical of it. And they think, oh, just we'll just kick the can down, spread it out a little bit more, incrementalism, as they say. Mm. But do you think there's something else that they're actually worried about timeline-wise? There's some researchers who talk about natural cycles of catastrophe. There's others that just think it's a great awakening and they're trying to beat that. What do you think their urgency is about? Just that they've come so far already that they need to get the final pieces in place to win the game? Or is there some outside factor that might be driving the urgency? The thing is, I usually refer to a thing that Ivy Lee said to John D. Rockefeller, senior and junior, in the, it was during, after this Ludlow massacre in 1940. And they needed advice on how to win back the trust from the public after all these scandals and, and how the Standard Oil Corporation behaved and so on. And Ivy Lee said, you can get a better reputation by giving people things, giving them dimes and uh, that John uh, uh, D. Rockefeller did, and buying uh, magazines and supporting education and everything. But he said one thing, and it was, you can't lie. You must tell the truth. Yeah. And because in the end, the public will know. They will find out eventually that you have lied. It might take time, but they will. And it was like at that moment they thought that, okay, but if we tell people what truth is, then we will win. So they started to fund this university. I mean, they have done it before as well. But now it became a really big thing to get what they wanted. So to own the science and own the truth. But as I really say, I mean, it doesn't matter. You can't own the science or the truth because truth is something else. It's something outside what we can manipulate as humans. It's there anywhere. The truth is absolute. So the time is catching up. It's really catching up. And they are feeling it. So I think it's both a thing that they have done, but also a natural, it's like a natural law that truth will find its way. It will always find its way. And they are trying to, the only thing they can do is get a few more years before the truth will hit them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think we are in this situation. Because this is so over the top. It's just, I mean, why couldn't they just continue as they did before? Be more like behind the scenes and, and manipulate yeah, things and, yeah. and so on. And But we had a, a kind of a okay living. But now they have stepped over everything. Yeah. And it's just so crazy. 
They're addicted. I mean, it's not it's not what you do. I mean, that's not what you do when you have control over the situation. Right. It's like they're addicted. They just have to push and push and push. And maybe like that is a mechanism of the universe that we should ultimately be thankful for because it will eventually <laughs> break the control apparatus, I suppose, unless people just continue to go along with it. But we will see. Hmm. And so as we're trying to bring this thing to a close, it's pretty obvious that I'm going to ask you again, what can we do? Because the reality is that many people are just trained to trust the system and the rest of us just keep tracking what these plans are. But tracking things and pointing out the goals doesn't do a whole lot to actually stop their progress. Are we just stuck in a never ending sound the alarm educational phase? Or can we actually do anything practical to stop this stuff when we're in the minority and the majority has been propagandized into seeing us as the problem? We've talked about this stuff coming for several years. I know it's coming. But is there anything else to do strategically other than wait and watch it happen? Uh, the thing is, I mean, uh, we just have to continue to speak out. We have to talk to people, inform people. There are more of us now. A lot of more people. And we will eventually reach a point, a kind of a tipping point that <laughs> usually these climate scientists talk about. A tipping point when enough people will understand. And at that time, every else will start to, ah, wait a minute, there's something happening here. And I think we are close to that point, actually. We don't have to be 80% to change things. I mean, we have 80% that just do what the others do. We just have to have a little group that can influence because i mean one thing is that before when we talked about these things it was one in a family it was like oh strange ideas you had but they hardly knew anyone else that talked about it but now it suddenly is okay almost uh, at the soccer field and talk to one uh, person there, and he talked about that. And then, at my when I was at work, I, another uh, is talking about these things, and they suddenly be heard from multiple sources, and that changes things, perspective for people, ordinary people. And I, I can just uh, take examples for myself. I was, I have a grocery store very close by. And uh, one day I went there and I was suddenly, I talked a bit with she that uh, sat in the cashier. And suddenly she said, ah, I've been following you. I've been following you on Facebook. And I agree. She's just an ordinary. She's sitting, I buy food from her <laughs> almost every day. Why well, uh, you still yeah. can buy food, that is. Yeah, yeah. And also, the other day, there was something uh, wrong with my washing machine, and uh, I had to send for a guy that was 
go to check this. And he, and he came into my home and when he had uh, repaired what he should do, we started to talk a bit and he talked yeah, and he saw my books and he said, wow, you have so many cool books, you know. Uh, wow, I'm very interested in about these things and history and, and how things are working for real. And then I just told him, you know, I write books. And I, and I showed my, my uh, the Global Coup d'etat and the Rockefeller book. And he asked, wow, and maybe you want a book? <laughs> yeah, I <he> said. <laughs> and uh, so I signed a book for him. And he, he's just an ordinary guy. And I meet these people everywhere. Uh, nowadays, so so it's it's not just a few conspiracy theorists or deniers and, and so on. It's it's uh, it's uh, like a grassroots movement that's uh, is growing, and you find people everywhere now. It wasn't that way just five years ago. Mm -hmm. It was unusual. Yeah. So so I think I mean things are happening. I I, I, I uh, I'm generally positive. Yeah, yeah. I try to be. It's just, it's tough. You know, it's, it's ebbs and flows, I guess. I am. Um, but well, I would say, I just, in closing, really appreciate your dedication to this work. I know it can be hard on a person. I definitely go through waves of hopelessness and frustration that so many people are ignorant about this. It's like watching a car crash in slow motion. But there are those moments, as you say, with the checker at the grocery store where people you don't expect, to be interested, end up interested in uh, going down the rabbit hole. So thank you for giving us a more European perspective and for a breakdown of the latest policy briefs from the UN. Some crazy stuff in there, but for people who want to follow your work more closely, give them the links that they need. Yes, can go to my, my homepage, jacobnordangard.se, or I have also have a substack, Dr. Jacob Nordangard. But on my, my uh, homepage, you find everything. I also have a YouTube channel. It's just search on my name and, and you will find it. And I have uh, interviews and other things uploaded there. And you can find my books as well from my, my homepage or the farosmedia.se. Nice. I love it. Yes. And uh, I, I encourage people to check out the Substack. It's a great one. And thanks again for taking the time. I'm happy to be on the right side of history with you, regardless of how it shakes out. We do what we can, I guess. But keep fighting the good fight and take care out there. Yeah. Thanks a lot. The power of Christ compels you, people. Ugh. It's hard to know what to say after an interview like this. I am aware that this is review for a lot of us, but it is nice to talk to someone who reads these policy briefs, or really reads between the lines of them, and can keep us updated on the latest aspects of this tyrannical takeover in their own words. The European perspective is probably appreciated from our listeners overseas as well. I know you guys are probably going to face the brunt of a lot of this stuff. And I don't want it to ever seem like we aren't concerned or we forgot about you just because we're over here dealing with our own thing. It's a global agenda, and I think it needs global resistance. So we're all in this one together. And thanks again to Gramerica for helping set the interview up. 
Obviously, the big Summit of the Future event in September of next year is where we're really going to hear about the next big round of crazy plans. But as for the second hour, most of the Plus show was getting deeper into where a lot of these plans are already currently implemented, where the central bank digital currencies are launching, the state of health passports and digital IDs. Sadly, a lot of these things are further along than we tend to think. And instead of COVID, which was a big scramble to rush these projects, next time they will be ready and we won't be able to write them off as easily as we did before. They're working now to seal up those cracks that a lot of us slipped through. Quite scary, but it was also great to ask a guy who named his band Wardenclyffe about alternative energy system suppression. But my favorite part of the second hour and probably the craziest part of this whole interview I might try to make it the plus clip that I share, but I think it's too long. But the insane plans to alter humans to better comply with these systems and to be better adapted to the changes in the world they're trying to make. Genetically engineering us to be more agreeable, engineering us to have negative reactions to meat, or to have products similar to nicotine patches to stave off our meat cravings. These are real ideas by the people who have the power to implement them, and they're just wild, nutty stuff. Sign up for Plus if you like the show I do and want to hear more of it. Seven-day free trial to get you started. Double your pleasure, double your fun. You can sign up with the link right there in your show notes and be listening to the Plus show before I'm even done here. But I also like that he got on this track by watching the Rockefellers big pivot and the premise that they know this green tech will fail so they can run up one market, suppress another, and then flip the switch again and just cash in on oil when the world wakes up. As we talked about, a lot of the oil divesting was surface level anyway. But they do seem willing to push the green agenda because it's not going to work and the social control aspects are just too appealing. So I really like Dr. Jacob Nordengard's work. He did want me to mention that he just signed a publishing deal with Skyhorse, who is going to be putting out his other books in English, and that's a beautiful thing. Let him know you dug this if you did, and for the metal fans out there, you'd probably like Wardenclyffe if you like lyrics that tie back into the sort of work he does. And in higher side news, I'm just chugging along. I did hear back from both of the Money Bomb winners. One was late to respond because he had an accident and broke his leg. So I'm glad I gave them a little extra grace period. And the money is going to someone who just had a recent setback like that. But let's play the messages. Hey, Greg. Just wanted to say thanks for being the most recent recipient of your Money Bomb. I uh, just had a recent stay in the hospital. I broke my leg, so I'll probably use that money for some hospital bills. Thanks for that. I love the show. I've been a member since 2016. Uh, some of my favorite guests are Dr. Farrell, uh, Chris Knowles, and of course, Gordon White. Um, keep up the good work. Thanks, man. Hey, Greg. My name's Kevin. I'm in the uh, Austin uh, area. And uh, just heard on the latest episode that uh, somebody better check their email to uh, see if they're the money bomb winner. And uh, lo and behold, I did. And uh, I won. It's an amazing surprise. Um, 
I'm very grateful. And, uh, you know, I'm going to use uh, the money if it's still available. And uh, you probably should have given it to somebody else by now. But if it's still around, if it's still available, um, I've been uh, wanting to have a, uh, a meetup and uh, go out on that uh, ledge and uh, schedule something for uh, some like-minded people so we can get together, meet each other and chat. And uh, I'm going to, I'll pick up the tab and uh, um meet some uh some other thc um friends so i appreciate it um yeah i just want to say uh you know my favorite episode and how i got uh, turned on to you was uh um the diana pasolka episode and uh man i just want to say that uh you as an interviewer are amazing you're excellent uh, sets you apart from anyone else and puts you in a in a category that um, you know you're asking these guests questions that uh, are deep and profound and challenging and uh, I get a lot from uh, your interview interviews and I know other people do too and uh, on behalf of all of us I just want to say thanks for that and uh, you really taken me to uh, down many, many rabbit holes. And sometimes I appreciate it. And sometimes I, uh, I kind of hate you for it, but, uh, man, I love you and I uh, love all the listeners and I'm excited to, to do something good with, uh, the cash and pay it forward. And in the spirit of marketing THC, get it all, uh, get it all moving and grooving, man. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and, uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. It's much, much appreciated. Take care. Peace. Awesome. Great stuff. Congrats to both of you guys. We get to offset a little bad luck for one guy. And if you're in the Austin area, apparently a couple of free drinks are coming your way. So keep an eye on the meetup calendar for that local event. A thousand bucks given back to a couple of listeners. I really like this little circle of life thing that we're doing keeping the money flowing within our network. It's kind of adjacent to buying local, you know, keeping the money flowing within businesses that are actually independently owned and have the values and philosophy that are important to us. So I think you know where my head was with this. You know, philosophically, I like this sort of approach, but I got to say that this idea as a marketing solution has been a pretty big failure. I've gotten no big requests to come on other shows. It doesn't really seem like the audience is helping with the goal of getting me in front of a bigger audience out there on other podcasts to promote THC. No big names have reached out to say, hey, I've gotten a lot of requests that I come on your show. And I can't say I've seen any clips being shared out there that I didn't make myself. So pretty much a failure, <laughs> which is fine. Like I said, I've spent marketing money before that didn't really move the needle. So I just thought I'd try to do it again, but in a more creative way. I've had more success with this show than I could have come up with in my wildest dreams. So I'm happy. And it's that overall success that allows me to just laugh at uh, trying a little something that didn't really work. Of course, we're not totally done yet. Two more shows left this month and another thousand bucks to give away between two more lucky listeners. 
but I don't think I can continue doing it unless something major happens that justifies doing it again. Or to be less vague, we'd at least need a bump in plus members to cover the cost. 250 of them seems like a lot to get in two weeks, but the free audience is tens of thousands of people. So it's not like I'd need any more than an extra 5% jump to feel like this idea did mean something to some of you guys out there. But I'm not holding my breath. I get it. People have their own lives and their own things to do. They just want to hear a podcast they like and move on without being asked to do anything. I understand that. So let's check the calendar and then we will call it in. The next events where THC fans are meeting other THC fans would be. July 22nd, we got one in Warden, Indiana. I think that's new. And it looks like this one is focused on homesteading and sustainable living. So definitely the right application for a local network meetup. Also July 22nd, Los Angeles, California. July 23rd, London. And July 28th is that Southwest Ohio zoom meetup to find out where people want to meet up in the future looks like we got four or five filling up for august as well so that's nice to see of course you know don't be shy anyone can hop on that calendar and make an event it's free and it's easy expand your local network with the right kind of people that's why i did this and that's why i pay for it to be maintained it feels like an important thing especially after an episode like this So take advantage before the next crisis. But that's it for me. Big thanks again to our guest. Keep an eye on his work and tell him thanks. I've done my part. Your move, takeover tyrants, technocratic agenda implementers, and globalist goons. Your fucking move. This is important. Hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door while I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung fu? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway. It's a scary dark world, scarier every day. Scary dark world, no matter what you say. Scary dark world, don't think we'll be okay. Can't you see that we're so But we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here But you can find noses Drown out the noise Now use that altar End up your magic game And listen to THC You know you go with the entities If you ever see the UFO Don't be sheep to your slaughter For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed But you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? 
all the rest of your life oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung fu? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway. It's a scary.